Well, I'm the guy who gets probably a little bit too emotionally involved in my sports teams. I, I used to be a guy who, when, when my sports team lost, my entire day was just wrecked. And being a fan of the Texas Rangers, that, that meant I had a lot of bad days during baseball season. But there was one particular moment where the Rangers were playing the Toronto Blue Jays in the playoffs. And being the playoffs, it was a time of, of kind of heightened tensions amongst the teams. And sure enough, there was some bad blood and, and players on either team got hit a couple times by the ball. And one of those players that got hit was the Toronto Blue Jays outfielder, Jose Bautista. And he was drilled, and, and so he took his base, and the next batter up for the Blue Jays came up, and they hit a, a ball, put it in play. And Bautista went to second base, and he slid in kind of Ty Cobb style with his cleats up, went in a little bit aggressively to second base. And the Texas Rangers second baseman, Rugnet Odor, took some umbrage at, at how Jose Bautista slid into second base. And, and Rugnet Odor decided he was going to pursue some vengeance the old-fashioned way. And so that, that's, a, that's not photoshopped. That's probably the most beautiful image that's ever been captured in, in sports right there, of Rugnet Odor just laying a, a clock, a haymaker, right across the face of Jose Bautista. Glasses falling off, everything. It was great. It was great. And what's even greater is that the national media was treating Odor like a hero because nobody really likes Jose Bautista in baseball. But my revenge craving loved this. It loved this. Or recently I was listening to a book on, I almost said a book on tape, an audio book called The Blood of Heroes. And it's all about the Battle of the Alamo. And growing up in Texas, you know, I, it's a story I know well, but listening through it and everything else and listening as, as Santa Ana and his, his forces came up and laid siege to the Alamo and then eventually broke down his defenses and came in and he had flown, flown the, the red flag of no quarter. And listening to how they went in and they, they slaughtered the, the men that were still living, that had surrendered, that had, had given up. And Santa Ana was just ruthless at the time and slaughtered them and then took their bodies outside the Alamo and stacked them up, body, wood, body, wood, body, wood, into two giant pyres and, and lit them on fire. And reading that and, and listening to that, and all of a sudden that, that desire for revenge begins to boil in my blood again. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about, well, just wait till San Jacinto, right? Just wait till, till Sam Houston and the rest of his, his Texian soldiers come back after Santa Ana and they rush into the battlefield. And what's their cry as they rush onto the battlefield? Remember the Alamo. I know we're in California, but come on, guys. This is, this is a, a pinnacle. This led to the independence of Texas, and then Texas blessed the United States by joining the United States eventually. I mean, this is, this is a taste of God's promised land here in the, the United States, right? Remember the Alamo. Why, why is that so great? Why does that stick in our minds? Because it's, it's revenge. But in preparing for this message, I was once again reminded and, and convicted that revenge just, it's not just unbecoming to a believer, to a follower of Christ. Personal, individual revenge is flat out unbiblical. See, our text, 1 Samuel 24, is going to reveal to us that regardless of the offense against us, it's not ours to seek revenge. When we've been wronged, when we've been sinned against, even if someone has to try to destroy our very lives, it's never the believer's right to raise a hand or speak a word with the goal of personal vengeance. 1 Samuel 24 is going to develop that in more detail for us as we look to how we ought to respond 
when everything would seem to suggest, everything around us, the world around us would seem to suggest, take revenge. In our context, as we get into 1 Samuel 24, we find that Saul is once more told of David's location. Apparently David is not very good at hide and seek. Because people go back to Saul and they say, hey Saul, David took refuge in the strongholds of En Gedi. Just to give you an idea of where En Gedi is and where David has been, we started up at the top left corner in Gath. That's where he went and pretended to be insane amongst the Philistines. Cave of Agilom is next down, and then Keilah, the town that he rescues from the Philistines, and then they're going to betray him, so he flees down to the wilderness of Ziph down here in the bottom. He meets Jonathan at Horesh, which is the, not the very bottom red line, but the next one up. And then after that, he flees to the wilderness of Maon, which is the, the bottom red line. And then from there, it says at the end of chapter 23, he goes over to En Gedi, which is over here on the coast, the western shore of the Dead Sea. And he takes refuge there in the strongholds of En Gedi. And En Gedi was a unique area. It wasn't like the wilderness of Ziph. It was, there's actually a spring in En Gedi, which makes it almost a, a tropical climate. And so it's a, a much different environment for Daniel to be fleeing to, for Daniel to be taking refuge in. But Saul, again, is, is made aware, hey, Daniel's hiding out in En Gedi. So Saul takes with him 3,000 men. How many men does, does David have with him at this point? 600. Saul takes five times the number of men that David has with him to go after David. You think Saul's a little bit bloodthirsty at this point in time? What follows is pretty comedic and and definitely unexpected for more reasons than they first meet the eye. We pick up in verse 3. Speaking of Saul, it says, He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, if you've ever watched 24, if you watched the, the, the good 24 back in the day with Jack Bauer, I always had the question, dude, does this guy never have to go to the bathroom? And he's, his cell phone never runs out of batteries. He doesn't have to eat. He just, for 24 hours, he's just perfect, right? Well, Saul's not Jack Bauer. Saul's on the, on the pursuit of, of David, and he's like, hey, guys, I, I got to hit the head. So he finds a cave, and he's got his 3,000 men with him, but the king doesn't need help. And so he goes into the bathroom to relieve himself, and into the cave to relieve himself. But in this same cave, unbeknownst to Saul, even Saul's thinking, I've got 3,000 men with me. I'm safe. There's no problems here. Nothing's going to happen to me. Unbeknownst to Saul, David and his 600 men are hiding in this cave. So it's a pretty big cave, and they're deeper in the cave. Saul comes in enough to have some privacy, but not all the way back to where David and his men are. Well, David and his men notice who just walked into their cave to take care of some business. And David and his men suddenly feel like they've won the lottery. Verse 4, it says this, This is David's men speaking to him. Here's the day. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Where did the Lord say that to David? He didn't say that to David. The closest we can come to finding that is when when Samuel anoints David to be the next king. And so maybe the men are are making an an inference. They're drawing an implication here out out of the promise that David will be the next king. And they're looking at their circumstances and they're looking at the fact that the Saul wandered into their cave and they're saying, hey, guess what, David, here's the day. The Lord said he was gonna hand Saul into your hands and here he is. But just put yourself in their shoes for a moment before we rush to judgment against them too quickly. Remember who they are from 1 Samuel 22. We read it last week. These are are the, the despairing, the downtrodden, the depressed. 
those that are owe great debts, those that are on the run for their lives, and now the one that is leading the charge against them has wandered into a cave and he's totally at their mercy. Put yourself in David's shoes for a moment. The man who had on multiple occasions tried to kill you. Many times over, took a spear, picked it up, and threw it at you. Tried to use your wife against you. Sent men to your home so that you had to flee, so that you had to leave everything and run for your life. That man is now at your mercy. On top of that, you had been anointed the next king of Israel. Samuel, God's prophet, had come to you and said to you, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And here was the moment. You could take it into your own hands. God had promised it. Circumstances seemed to be lining up. I can take revenge. I can go after Saul. Even more than that, Saul's own son was on your side. He was your best friend. He had told you, look, I know that you're going to be the next king of Israel. And so when, you're, when you are the next king of Israel, I'm going to be right there at your right hand. And you add to all of that the urging of the 600 men behind you, and it would have seemed to David and to seem like to all of us who were in that position that revenge had been served to him on a silver platter. See, if there was ever a time where circumstances could have dictated our actions, where circumstances could have said, you know what, revenge is appropriate, individual personal revenge is appropriate right now, this was it. But what we find is David doesn't follow fate's script. Instead, David creeps up to Saul and he does something kind of odd. He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. See, I don't think David ever had it in his mind to kill Saul. But he did want to humiliate him. He did want to embarrass him. What's more, as he cuts off a corner of the king's robe, the king's robe would have been a symbol of royal authority. So it may have been that David was actually, in in a sense, staking claim to the throne by taking a piece of Saul's robe from him in this. But even in this decision to cut off this corner of Saul's robe, one that all of his men would have looked at and said, David, that's not enough. One that all of us would look at and say, David, that's not enough. Even in this small decision to take a corner of the king's robe, David felt immediate regret. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him. Struck him. It's the same word that's used previously when Saul tries to strike David with a spear. It's the same word used later on after David takes a, a, a census and counts the troops against the Lord's command And David feels conviction on that. It's the same word used there that his heart was struck by the weight of his sin. Verse 5, David's heart struck him. Because why? Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Why does David feel guilty? Because David knows that in his quest for personal individual revenge, he's transgressed God's commandments. Which commandment? Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, for us to get specific. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. God says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. David knew it was wrong for him to raise his hand against God's anointed. He had transgressed God's word by cutting off this corner of Saul's robe. And while we may have all been able to advise him that based on his circumstances, it was God's will for him to do this and more, David knew better. 
He knew that regardless of his circumstances, regardless of what the situation may appear to be implying or suggesting is the right course of action, he must remain obedient above all else to God's revealed will through his word. That's point number one for us this morning. It's this. Don't presume God's will. Don't presume God's will. You know, there may be times when we we've been wronged or we've been sinned against, we've been offended, and and we might be convinced that it's God's will for us to pursue a course of revenge, a course of vengeance. The circumstances may be setting themselves up to, to make it a perfect opportunity for us to do so. We might feel totally justified in it, and others around us might agree with us that we're totally justified in in seeking revenge for a wrong done to us, but before we act, we have to make sure that we are actually acting in accordance with God's word. See, we can't look at at circumstances, at at the situations around us. We can't trust our own wisdom. We can't trust the wisdom of of others around us and, and presume to know God's will apart from first and foremost anchoring ourselves to what his revealed will is in the scripture. Because the reality is if if our circumstances or if the wisdom of others around us or if our own wisdom, our own feelings contradict God's word, then everything else is wrong and God's word is still right. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, I've Middle of the night, my twins still wake up occasionally and, and need a pacifier or whatever. So you, you get out of bed, house is dark, and you go and, and you give them a pacifier back. Now, I, I know how to get from my bed to the twins' crib. I've done it a few thousand times. I know how to do that, but yet I still grab my phone and I still use the flashlight on my phone to get from my bed to their crib. You know why? Because if I try to use my own understanding, my own wisdom, my own recollection of that path, inevitably there's going to be a toy or a Lego or something in the hallway that I'm going to kick or step on that's not going to be good for my sanctification. And so what do I do? I grab a light to illumine my path so that I can get from point A to point B. I I rely on that light so that I can see where I'm going, so that I know the course to follow. Guys, that's God's word in our lives. And when it comes to this desire for vengeance, this desire to be justified, this desire for revenge, we have to first and foremost go to God's word to find out God, what is your will in this situation? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with what? With all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. Our flesh, everything about this world, the the people that we surround ourselves with, out of love for us, when we're wronged, when we're offended, they're going to say, you know what? You need to get them back. Justice needs to be served in this instance. And they have our best interest at heart. But we have to, again, ask ourselves, is this in accordance with God's word? David does the unexpected here. He not only lets Saul live, but he even feels brokenness over this act. And on top of that, he turns to the 600 men who are with him that are like, this is the time, kill him. And he manages to get them not to harm Saul. The text it says David persuaded his men. His men. That's, that's a weak rendering of that word. 
It, it, it literally means David rebuked his men. David used as firm a, a, a rebuke as he possibly could to the, the 600 men that were gathered with him to say, no, this is not right. We're not doing this. I'm not killing him and you're not killing him. He rebuked, he persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. But David wasn't just going to let him walk away. See, David knew it wasn't God's will for him to, to, to take Saul's life. He didn't let circumstances inform God's will. He let God's word inform God's will. But he wasn't going to just let Saul walk away without standing up and pleading his innocence and his integrity before him. See, when we've been wronged, it's not wrong for us to stand up and say, what you did to me is not right. What you did to me is wrong. If, if you've been falsely accused, it's not wrong for you to plead your integrity, to plead your innocence, and to say, I'm not the man that you think I am. That's what David does here in our text. Verse 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some who were with me told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. It's a term of respect and a term of endearment. See my father, the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom does the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David uses the corner of Saul's robe to plead his integrity. To say, Saul, you're being fed a load of lies. I'm not the man that they're telling you I am. I'm not out for your life. I could have taken your life right then, but I didn't. And so see that I am not I don't have ill motives with you. But there's something else in David's speech that's worth our attention. Look again at verse 12. Verse 12, may the Lord, what's the next word? Judge. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. See, David's not ready to sweep everything under the rug and let bygones be bygones, but he does realize one thing. He realizes that the revenge that he longs for isn't his to take. I think this is one of the harder battles for us to fight against our flesh. When we're wronged, we naturally want justice. We want the person who sinned against us, the person who wronged us to pay, and we want them to pay according to our timetable. But the clear testimony of Scripture contradicts this. Because I know what you may be thinking right now. You may be thinking, well, 
Well, Pastor PJ, the reason David didn't take revenge has nothing to do with the fact that we shouldn't take individual revenge. It has everything to do with that Saul was the Lord's anointed. The person that wronged me isn't the Lord's anointed, so I can take revenge. Okay, so let's go to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 41. Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we would all say what? Amen, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but... That's that word of contrast, isn't it? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The words of Christ are pretty plain. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile, go two. Verse 43, the same text. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, we all say amen. Verse 44, but, there's that contrast again. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I can't take personal revenge against someone else and say that I'm obeying Christ. I can't do it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Not in precatory prayers, not saying, God, judge them, smite them, kill them right now. But pray for them, the ones that persecute you. So that, verse 45, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's a strong statement he just made. A characteristic, a defining characteristic of a child of God is that he loves his enemies and prays for those who persecute him. Man, that flies in the face of our culture, doesn't it? How about Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 19? Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Again, these are the words of Scripture at this point. This is not my, my commentary. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And you say, well, I'm an instrument of the wrath of God. Check yourself on that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How about Peter? What does Peter have to say about this? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Remember, Peter's writing to believers who are scattered under the persecution of Nero. Believers who knew what it was to suffer unjustly. Who knew what it was to be wronged. Peter says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so Peter, how are we to follow in the steps of Christ? Verse 22. 
he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So what's the example of Christ that we are to follow? It's this, we need to to entrust ourselves, entrust our desire for revenge, entrust our longing for justice to the one who judges justly. It's point number two this morning. It's this. Relinquish your right to revenge. Relinquish your right to revenge. We get this from 30,000 feet. We're on board with this. We say, oh yeah, well that's why hell exists. That's where the wrath of God is poured out against all those who have rejected Christ. That's where he's taking vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so yeah, hell exists and and all those evil, wicked sinners are in hell and they're burning for all of eternity and, and they're suffering under God's vengeance. We get that. We understand that. The suicide bomber in the Middle East blows himself up and takes out a bunch of women and children. We can, we can say, well, God's taking his vengeance on him in hell. And yes, he is. But before we nod our heads too quickly on that, I, I want to ask us, what about when somebody offends us? Offends us personally sins against us, cheats us out of money that we trusted them to take care of for us. Falsely accuses us of doing something that we didn't do. Let me drive it home a little bit more personally and and tangibly. What if somebody rapes your wife? At that point, are we willing to say and, and, and look at the words of Christ that says love your enemies? Are we willing to look at the words of Paul and obey the, the scripture that says, never avenge yourselves? You say, well, that's, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense according to my flesh. If somebody raised my wife, I, that person better pray the cops beat me to them. Let me help us grasp this context, this, this concept, by turning our attention to Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there. We're going to you know, look at one verse, Psalm 51, verse 4. The context of Psalm 51 is what? It's, it's right after David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet. Because David had sinned against quite a few people. He didn't go to war. He saw Bathsheba bathing on top of the rooftop. He said, hey, that's a pretty naked lady. I want her over here. So he lusts after her in his own heart. Then he commits adultery with her. And then he commits deception and deceit by lying to Uriah and trying to get him drunk so that he'll go and have sex with his wife so that he can pass off the baby that she's pregnant with as Uriah's. But Uriah being a more just man than David, even when he's drunk, says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uriah goes back to the front lines. David then decides, hey, I'm going to have Uriah murdered. So David sinned against a lot of people, hasn't he? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the men that he sent after Bathsheba that he'd involved in this whole plot. He sinned against the men that he had uh, go and, and bring Uriah back. He sinned against Uriah by lying to him about what was going on. He definitely sinned against Uriah by committing murder. And he definitely sinned against those that he involved in the murder plot and the conspiracy by having them involve themselves. So that, that's a pretty big list of people that David wronged, that David sinned against, isn't it? And yet we come to Psalm 51 verse 4. David says, against you, God, you only 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Wow. How can David say, after all those people that he sinned against, Uriah the most, how can David say, against you and you only have I sinned? Well, it's because David understood something that's important for us to understand with this whole concept of revenge. He understood that all sin is first and foremost, above and beyond anything else, an offense against God and his holiness. So let me turn that around to to back where we're at right now. Sin against you. Somebody cheats you out of money. Somebody falsely accuses you. Somebody rapes your wife. Somebody abducts somebody that you love. That sin against you, above and beyond being sin against you, is first and foremost sin against God. Thus, the right to revenge, the right to take vengeance, is first and foremost, and I would go further and say exclusively, the Lord's. And so we have to be willing to relinquish, to let go of our personal offense in deference to the Lord's. Entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Look, we're not saying this is no big deal and this guy's not going to be punished. We're saying the Lord is going to take care of this. And he may take care of it through our justice system if it's a, a, a broken law and this guy is brought to justice and put through the courts. Or it may be a situation where this person is storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. But nonetheless, it's not ours to take matters into our own hands and pursue our own sense of justice, our own sense of revenge. Well, in the remaining part of 1 Samuel 24, Saul responds. Saul responds and he says, it says in verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. A promise David would ultimately keep. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. See, now it's, it's Saul's turn to feel a little bit of conviction to feel the weight of guilt when he realizes David's righteousness. Verse 17 again. You are more righteous than I. Why? For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Isn't that the reality that all of us come to when we come to the realization of of faith in Christ? See, this is far from a conversion moment from Saul, but the realization that crushed him here is the same realization that must accompany true conversion for all of us. And that's this. We must come to terms with the gospel reality that God, who is more righteous than we are, has repaid us with overwhelming good grace and mercy, whereas we have repaid him with 
overwhelming evil, sinfulness, and wickedness. See, we, we look down our noses at Saul. We're right there with David's men thinking to ourselves, he deserves this. Kill him. Take his life, Samuel. David, put him to death. God's delivered him into your hand. We're right there nodding our heads in agreement initially. But if we do a little bit of honest soul searching, we have to come to the sobering reality and conclusion that our sins against God are far greater than any of Saul's sins against David. And so in David's response to Saul, and in Saul's understanding of David's actions, we see a type of the gospel on display for us. That though David had every right to take the life of Saul, he exercises grace and mercy and he lets Saul go free. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare to die. But God, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified. We've been declared righteous, not just not guilty, but innocent by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul describes us in that passage this way. We're weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. Weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. If, if anyone's a prime candidate for the Lord to take revenge on, it's every single person who's ever lived. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not what God did. See, God repaid us with overwhelming good in the face of our overwhelming sinfulness. It's point number three. This morning, our final point, let the gospel transform your desires. Let the gospel transform your desires, your desires for revenge, your desires for vengeance. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18 of the wicked servant. There's a king in the land, and the king calls this servant before him who owes an amount of money that he could never pay off if he was to work every single day for the rest of his life and give it all to the king. And the king tells the servant, your debt is due. It's time for you to pay. The servant says, I don't, I don't have that, king. Please be gracious. Please be merciful. And the king says, all right, I'm going to forgive your debt. All of it. And the servant goes out and finds a fellow slave who owes him a day's wage, owes him a, a piddly amount of money. And he looks at him and he says, hey, day's up. It's time. Pay me. And the slave says, I, I don't have it. And the wicked slave says, all right, well, to debtor's prison you go. The king hears of it and he brings the, the slave that he had forgiven that immense debt back in before him. And he says, you wicked slave. After I had forgiven you so much, how is it that you went after him and would not forgive him such a little offense against you? See, that's in the context of Jesus being asked a question. How many times... How many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy? Jesus says, no, I tell you, 70 times seven. Okay, 490. No. 
a limitless number, seven being that number of completion. Then he tells this story. So how does this factor into 1 Samuel 24 and David and, and Saul and all of us as we're thinking about revenge? It factors in this way. Revenge is unbiblical and unchristlike because revenge at its core is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. When we harbor desires for revenge and vengeance against another person, we're harboring a spirit of unforgiveness against them. When we won't relinquish our right to revenge, what we're declaring is we're declaring to God, that offense against me is bigger and greater and more heinous than my offense against you, God. My sense of justice is greater than your sense of justice. My personal holiness is of more value than your holiness, God. Yeah, sure, you've forgiven me, but don't ask me to forgive that person. You don't understand what they did to me. I mean, none of us would ever say that. But that's, in practice, what we're doing when we're harboring these desires for revenge against another person. Paul in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, David and in displaying this grace and mercy to Saul, Saul's overwhelmed by David's goodness. But Saul's brokenness doesn't last very long. In fact, we'll see this in a couple chapters. He's back at it again, back after David. But for you and I, how have you responded to the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the immeasurable grace and mercy that God has shown you through the gospel? Has it impacted the way that you view, the way that you treat others who have sinned against you and wronged you? Has the gospel transformed your desires for revenge? You know, as believers, we shouldn't have any remember the Alamo moments in our lives. At least not individually. We shouldn't have any Rugnet Odor, Jose Bautista haymakers in our lives, figuratively, figuratively or literally. As believers, when it comes to revenge, we need to recognize that it's, it's not ours to take. The gospel has changed all of that for us. And now we have to agree with David and realize that we have to relinquish our right to revenge no matter what the world or our circumstances might suggest. We have to consider that any offense against us is a far greater offense against God and that he will one day take his vengeance. And we must, in the meantime, wait in our integrity. And what's even harder, we must remember that the gospel is as much, the gospel is as much for our enemies, those that sin against us, those that wrong us, the gospel is as much for our enemies as it is for us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, love your enemies. I don't know a way that we could show more love to an enemy than to sit down and share the gospel with them. Let's pray together.
Father, again, a a difficult text to wrestle with the, the practical application for us. God, there are times that it's right for us to stand up and come to the defense of the defenseless. There's right for us to stand up and, and stop a wrong from taking place. Yet at the same time, Lord, when we have been personally wronged or sinned against, it's not our right to seek revenge and to seek vengeance. We need to entrust that to you. We thank you that you are a God of justice and there is hope for us to hold on to and it's not wrong to hope for justice to be meted out against the wicked and evil in this world and at the same time, Lord, we find a tension in our lives that we want to pray for them to have their eyes open to the reality and the truth of the gospel. Because vengeance is yours and you will have it and really there's two options for us to to see that dispensed in life. The first option is by us repenting from our sins and putting our faith in Christ and recognizing that you took revenge, you poured out your vengeance against all of our sins, past, present, and future, when you exhausted your wrath upon Christ when he was on the cross. So you have taken your revenge against us by killing your son. That's option one. Or option two, if we reject the gospel, we reject Christ. You will have your revenge against those that have done that in an eternity in hell, an eternity in the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where your divine justice and judgment will be poured out against their sinfulness and wickedness. Father, as we live in in the, the not yet part of looking for your justice, I pray that you would help us to live patiently, live as men of integrity, I pray that we would be men who, are, who break the mold of our culture, men who are, are those who love our enemies, who pray for them, men who are obedient to your commands in the scripture to never avenge ourselves, men who will follow in the footsteps of Christ and entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. May we do that, Lord. And may you be glorified in the way that we suffer as we suffer well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.